We're each no doubt so thankful for the opportunity to assemble today, this fourth Sunday in November 2015, to do so for the express purpose of worshiping God in truth and in spirit. And we, of course, appreciate the great blessing presented in the Scriptures toward those who do worship in that way. And all of us today are excited and happy that we've been given this chance and opportunity. You may notice on the wall to my left a title that perhaps could lead or at least take us in a number of different directions, the foundation of faith. It may also be the case that that text that we considered together a moment ago as was read in our hearing from Jeremiah 44 may not seem to be the most obvious one to select as we endeavor to consider that topic today. You may remember on a Wednesday evening not too many weeks ago as a part of our discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there were comments that directed us back to Jeremiah 44 and this lesson is really an elaboration a rather extensive one at that on some of the matters that we began to consider then. I hope that you still have your Bible open there to Jeremiah 44, for we'll be looking at that in some detail in just a moment. These comments on this, additional, this next slide will in fact point us to the direction we'll be moving in the lesson this morning. Wouldn't we all agree that faith is an incredibly rich and enthralling treasure? We understand the basic bedrock that is its necessity, for without faith it's impossible to please Him. He that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6. No one then would question or doubt the essential component of faith. And yet, in verse 1 of that same chapter, we are given this operational definition. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, isn't it true that the end of our faith is the salvation of our souls, 1 Peter 1 verse 9? Isn't it thus the case that without a solid, strong, continuing faith, what hope do we have to be saved? This morning, you and I are going to look then at what kind of a foundation would provide a sufficient and strong foundation upon which to build the faith that would lead to the salvation of life. I would submit to you that there are many foundations that might be suggested. The children of Israel tried them. We're going to study in some detail today what they picked, and we'll find that not only was that a matter that was certainly a vital issue for them, we today can choose in principle the same things they did. We're going to ask what happened to them. Is it what they wanted? Did it lead to their salvation? Or were they lost? Today, we're going to ask ourselves the same thing. I might suggest that Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 24 and following, talked about a rich man who, or rather a, a very wise person, who proceeded to build upon a strong rock. On the other hand, there was one who built upon the shifting and weakness of sand. We all remember what happened. The house that was built on the rock, it stood firm, and it was able to withstand all the forces and difficulties that were waged against it. But on the other hand, the house that was built on the sand couldn't stand the wind and rain. It couldn't stand the forces that were brought against it, and it fell, and its collapse was noteworthily great. Today, what about the foundation of your life and mine? And as you and I look around the auditorium and see the youngsters, what about the foundation that's going to be characteristic of their life 15 years from now, 25 years from now? What about those grandchildren of yours? 
or mine in which we ask, if God allows the world to stand, what about them 40 years from now? Will their faith have been sturdily placed upon something that would withstand? Let's study about that today. As we do that, we'll revisit first the setting of Jeremiah 44. What was happening then? It's never a good idea to divorce a text from the character of what was going on then. We're going to try to understand that setting. And when we've done that, then we'll make a host of applications to you and me today. First of all, the setting. The children of Israel, on yet another occasion, we find here that it was not a very pleasant description of them. They had begun to make choices moving in directions whereby they were given to activities that were not pleasing to God. Among them, idolatry. They were bowing before the various gods and goddesses of that ancient era. And as they did so, God Himself was exceedingly displeased. Would you note verse 2 of Jeremiah 44 with me? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, ye have seen all the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a desolation, and no man dwelleth therein, because of their wickedness which they have committed, to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they knew not, neither they, ye, nor your fathers. To perhaps be a very... Quick description, God says, look at what I have allowed to happen to Jerusalem. The enemy armies of Babylon have overrun it. Great destruction has happened. In fact, there's not even any notable number of people dwelling there. Already some of the captivity has happened. Some of God's people have been taken captive, taken into a foreign land. You'll notice verse 3 says it's because of their wickedness this happened. It's not just that they were uneducated. It's not that their military was weak. I allowed it to happen because they had chosen to do what was wrong in my sight. But with that in mind, look at what comes next. God was quick to remind them, it's not as if I didn't give you warning. It's not as if I didn't provide you individuals to hearken and urge you to repent. Verse 4 puts it like this, How be it? I send unto you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. God here through Jeremiah reminded them, I sent you the prophets. I sent you those faithful individuals who urged you to recognize the error of your way and to repent. But you'll notice verse 5. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear to turn from, other, from their wickedness to burn no incense. They said, we're not going to do this. We don't want to do what you say, God. We're going to do something else. One by one, as you begin to look at all of that, God had already allowed some things to happen to Jerusalem. But more is to come. About the middle of that slide, I would ask you to notice one thing that had occurred. Some of the people who had lived in Jerusalem, some of the individuals who had lived there, could see the enemy armies coming. They could sense that the end was relatively near. And so they packed up their bags and moved off to Egypt to escape the terrible atrocities that were coming. And I'd ask you to note, what about those living in Egypt? Did God forget about them or were they too the subjects of some of the judgments of God? Please note verse 13. 
For I will punish them that dwell in the land of Egypt, as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah which are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall escape or remain, that they should return into the land of Judah, to the which they have a desire to return to dwell there, for none shall return but such as shall escape." God says, I have not forgotten those that, that attempted to escape my judgment. They may have fled Jerusalem and they may have gone to Egypt, but I know exactly where they are. And you'll notice verse 14 says, they are not going to be able to return in peace. Maybe that's a sad lesson for all of us. God knows exactly the details of our lives. We cannot hide from Him. There is nothing that we can keep from His point of view he is very well aware of all of it. Maybe all of that leads us quickly to the close of this slide and prepares us for the various slides to follow. So we've already learned that the children of Israel again had made mistakes and again God was aware of it. But you'll notice in verses 15 and following, the prophet Jeremiah speaking for God came directly before them and he had some very strong words for them. As you look at some of those features, I'm going to ask that you consider this reply of the people. Please listen with care. Then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods, and all the women that stood by, a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, as for, the Lord, as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth, to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her. As we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then had we plenty of victuals, and were well and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men? We'll stop at that point. Let's build the rest of our lesson about making applications of that. You can see at the bottom of that slide, the people re re replied to Jeremiah very directly. Jeremiah came before them and said, God knows exactly all of you living here in Egypt. You may think you've escaped destruction. You may think that you no longer will answer for what you've done. But yet here in Egypt, you're doing the same kinds of idolatry you did back in Jerusalem. Here in Egypt, you're engaging in the same kinds of abominable activities. And don't you think God knows it? How did they reply to Jeremiah? You just noticed it as I, as I read it in our hearing. These lessons seemingly quickly follow. You'll find in the words that they spoke, they listed several foundations for their faith. What things they were doing and why they were doing them. I'd like you to think with me about it for the rest of the lesson this morning. What about the foundation of your faith and mine? First thing, back to verse 17. I would ask you to notice it again as I read it. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth. There's the first 
element of foundation for many people. It was for some in the days of the people of Israel. You probably can easily appreciate it. Israel was determined from the words of their own mouth, we are going to do what we want to do, Jeremiah, and we really don't care what you say. We're going to do what we want to do. Those who are the descendants of those people are legion in the world today, aren't they? They bear an association to religion. In fact, they would highly, in fact, sometimes even refer to biblical passage, but the basic idea is we're going to do what we're going to do. And I really don't care what else others may have to say about it. Is that a strong foundation for faith? Is that an appropriate and steady basis upon which to build a life that's pleasing to God? You'll notice some of those comments could make application to things like the plan of salvation. There are many in our world today who again would make a strong association to something that would have relation to the Word of God. But we are bound, they say, and we're going to do what we're going to do. You don't have to be baptized, they say. Just feel in your heart what you would wish and what you appreciate and God will welcome you into the wondrous portals of life with Him. Now is that true? It sounds good, I guess, but how it sounds makes no difference. Is it true? The people in Jeremiah's day, verse 17 says, we will certainly do. Did you note the adverb certainly? Jeremiah, we're going to do this which we want to do because we like it. That's still a strong presenting guide to much of the religious world, isn't it? We like it. How many have mechanical instruments of music and worship and why? There's no authority in the Bible for it, but why? Because we like it. And, we're, and we're, that's what we're going to do. And we don't care what others may have to say about it. Well, the children of Israel tried it. We like this. You'll notice though at the bottom of those comments on that slide, what we like does not determine what God will accept. It didn't in Israel's case. You'll notice with care, Abel and Cain present to us a scene back in Genesis 4. Cain tried it. He did what he liked, but God wasn't pleased with it. Later on, we find in Judges 17, 6, that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Did God like it? He didn't. We find so easily that text in Matthew 15, 13. Jesus Himself speaking in a monumental fashion. He asserted, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Now as we've often noted, the Lord wasn't giving a dissertation on crop research. He was describing about institutions that were not known to God and not authorized by Him. And the Lord said it will be rooted up. At that point, Perhaps one final passage in Jeremiah 10, 23. Same book that we're studying from this morning. How often had God through Jeremiah reminded them, it's not in man that walketh to direct his own steps. And yet in the name of religion still today, that seems such a paramount consideration. We're going to do it because we like it. Bad foundation. Wholly unacceptable. After all, didn't Romans 10, 17 tell us, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. 
we begin to see there the etching consideration of what makes a strong faith. It must be built thoroughly, completely, entirely, and unashamedly upon the Word of God. Upon it, thus saith the Lord. However, that's not the only thing the children of Israel reference. Let's look at another one. You'll notice, what about their past behavior? Back to verse 17 of Jeremiah 44. We will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth, to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done. The people were quick to say to Jeremiah, Look, we've been doing this for years. Does past behavior determine what's right? Just because it was done last year, five years ago, even 50 years ago, did that make it right? Did that make it acceptable? The children of Israel quickly said, Look, Jeremiah, this is what we've been doing. Bad foundation. After all, you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, and I put it in, in italics as well as in quotes, this is what we've been doing. Well, as you and I develop that more thoroughly, notice some additional considerations of it. Some today, it seems, are quick to fall into the same trap, aren't they? This is what this congregation has been like for as long as I can remember. If it was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. There are others who are quick to say, but this is the way that it's been done as far back as I can remember. If it was good enough for that generation, isn't it good enough for us? There seems to be an easy possibility of resting one's foundation on just what others in days gone by have done. Is that a good foundation? Is it strong? Is it necessarily favorable? You'll notice at the top of that slide, this is the very issue that was such an overwhelming consideration at the start of the Restoration Movement. When, of course, the Reformation had taken place and all sorts of religious organizations had sprung up around this country and other places, we remember, of course, that there came to be a clarion call, let's return to the Bible. Let's not give interest to what men have taught, what men have asserted, what various confessions have stated. Let's be interested only in what the Scriptures teach. Well, you'll notice there came a direct time then when individuals did not give much interest to what had been done. And you and I must appreciate the worthiness of that consideration. Because notice, the people of Israel said, As we have done. Just because something's been done in the past, no matter how many may have been guilty of it, no matter how many may have endorsed it, does not make that in and of itself right. A whole host might have been misled. A whole host might have been moved in a direction opposite to what was the will of God. And it's still true all throughout the sacred scriptures, number alone did not determine rightness. I think we'd all quickly admit, when it came to the flood of Noah's day, there was eight versus untold numbers of thousands. Were the thousands the ones in the right? Obviously not. When there were 12 spies that came back, Ten of them said, we cannot take the land, but two did. Now, was the ten the ones that were right? Obviously, they weren't. When we arrive at the scenes of Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, what was it our Savior taught? Enter ye into the straight gate, 
For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth into, into destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Jesus himself asserted few, and notice those few are not resting upon merely what the past has done. Maybe in light of that, look at some of these applications. Isn't it true that the very matter we're discussing presently is vitally related to repentance? Repentance is this change of mind that manifests itself in a change of action. And yet, if we're completely in accord to what has been done in the past, what reason would there be to repent? And yet Jesus said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. The necessity then of appreciating those in previous generations or those in the past, they might have been mistaken. Or at least my faith must not rest solely upon what they have asserted. But you'll notice these children of Israel went even beyond that. They had a lot to say to Jeremiah. Let's look at a third one. Back to verse 17 of Jeremiah 44. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth, to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done, we and our fathers." We notice one of the next matters that these were quick to say is, Jeremiah, look, my daddy did it this way. My grandma did it this way. And if what was good enough for her, I believe it's good enough for me. Here was a situation in which they exactly rested upon that which their forefathers had done. Our family members. They worship this queen of heaven. They worship these various and sundry other idols. And Jeremiah, we're going to do it too. Well, might you and I pause for a moment and ask, is what our fathers, our grandfathers, our mothers or grandmothers, does that by itself make it a good foundation? Does that by itself make a worthwhile matter upon which to build a life of faith? You and I would be quick to say, that sincerity is a vital consideration in the worship activities of very, very many. Maybe even your parents or mine or your grandparents or great-grandparents and mine. And we certainly are thankful for the earnestness and sincerity in it, but that's not our question. None of us would doubt that. But does that by itself make it right? Does that by itself make it appropriate? You'll notice in this instance... Jeremiah's words were such that the answer must be no. They were quick to say, our fathers did it. Maybe you or I have known individuals who themselves, even upon reading texts in the Bible, and say, I know what that says and I see what it says. But my mother didn't see it that way. And what was good enough for mama is what I'm going to believe. And individuals who feel that way are elevating what mama believed above what the Bible teaches. To think of it that way presents it in such a regrettable fashion, doesn't it? But that's what they're doing. At this point, what about the children of Israel? Did that make a good foundation for them? We know the answer is no. How many times in the annals of Israelite history had their fathers done what God condemned? And that was another instance as it was on this occasion. No wonder as you come to the bottom, 
granddad may have liked some alcohol. Does that make it right? Grandma may have paid piano in church services all her life. Does that make it right? We appreciate we must not try to base our faith simply on what parents, grandparents, or others have done as much as we love them. We need to love the character of eternal salvation and the soul more. In this instance, the people of Israel had made a mistake. Simply trusting upon what the previous generations had done. At the bottom of that slide, you'll notice the Lord on more than one occasion reminded those of His day about this very issue, didn't He? In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and following, as the Lord addressed those gathered on that occasion, He said, I came not to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, Jesus said. But I thought Jesus was the loving one of Shiloh, the bringer of the, of the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, verse 6. And so He is. But on that occasion, He said, I came to bring a sword. What do you mean by that, Jesus? Next verse. The daughter-in-law will be against her mother-in-law. The son will be against his father. The daughter will be against her mother. What do you mean, Jesus? Sometimes mothers and fathers and sometimes even children choose that path that is not right. And one who loves the Lord has to say, as much as I love you, I love the Lord more and I'm going to pray for you. I want to study with you and help you understand and know that your current course of action is not in harmony with the will of God. That's what Jesus meant when He said, I came to bring a sword. There will be times that we can't agree religiously with family members because they have chosen the way that's not right. And they continue to pursue it. These in the days of ancient Israel made those poor choices, didn't they? Faith cometh by hearing, though, and hearing by the Word of God. And so you and I appreciate that's not a good foundation either. The children of Israel had even more to say. Did you notice what else they said in the same verse? Back to verse 17. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth, to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done we and our fathers, our kings and our princes. Here they even made note, not only have we and not only have our ancestors, but our prominent leaders have done this. And so I would ask you to notice, the prominent people in Israel had been guilty of these, of these behaviors. Idolatry, the worship of the various and sundry gods. And you may notice that one particular one was mentioned, the Queen of Heaven. Don't you find that an interesting phrase? Five times in the book of Jeremiah that phrase is listed. Five times it appears. The children of Israel had given them, themselves over to the pursuit of this queen of heaven. Who was she? Well, all that you and I need to know by piecing together those other references in Jeremiah, it was a rather overwhelming kind of idolatrous activity. We know the God of heaven, of course, is the king of heaven. But they were worshiping this queen of heaven. There would be large festivals and feasts to her, and it would be engaged in a great deal of frivolity and enjoyable activities, at least from a sensual perspective. And they loved it. They were worshiping the queen of heaven. You'll notice in this passage, our princes and our kings have done it. 
What about the application to today? Sometimes isn't it still true that these high scholars and these impressive people with so many credentials, well, they've done it, and they have written an endorsement of it. Well, if it's good enough for them, and they're scholars of the Word, and I'm not, well, surely they have to be right, don't they? How many then give the foundation of their faith in part over to what some supposed scholar has said, or what some person holding a high office has asserted? people of Israel tried it. Was it a good foundation? Was it a circumstance in which they then were doing what was pleasing to God? And the obvious answer is no. Their kings and their princes had given themselves over to doing what was not appropriate and what was not right. And so it was with these prominent people. You and I might make those same applications to today. There are many people in our world who occupy very high civil offices and sometimes even high religiously affiliated offices. And they have come out openly endorsing some of the agendas that are so swift around our land like the homosexual one. Maybe someone will be quick to say, perhaps as a youth, well, that man has studied for years and he's now 60 years old and if he's reached the conclusion due to study that that's the way it is, well, maybe he's right. Friend, may we never ever rest our salvation and our faith upon what someone has asserted. His study may have led him so far afield, it's rather regrettably sad. His outlook and his cosmic worldview of life may be so far removed from the Bible that what he has asserted is not based in any way upon Scripture. May you and I realize their mistake should not be one we make. May we thus appreciate that when someone tries to teach us about this agenda or that and how the Bible endorses it, it's not true. It just isn't the case. Perhaps a case in point would be some of those examples at the bottom. What about the modern perspective of denominationalism? It really is becoming a greater and greater tide of force and influence, it seems, with each passing considerable year. God loves everybody, doesn't He? And how this church does it doesn't matter to God. It's just whether or not, so they say, they have in their hearts a love for Him. Friend, that's not true. Our Savior built one church and only one. We read in Matthew 16, 18, He said, I will build my church. He did not say churches, either in English or Greek. He promised and His blood only built one in Matthew, in rather Acts 20, verse 28, we're told the purchase price was His blood. And He shed His blood for one body. And all the considerations, and as good as it may sound to the ears of many in earth, it just isn't true that He will accept any and all, no matter what they do or how they do it. He shed His blood and put in place, of course, the considerable nature of the truth. And he said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8, 32. And so what prominent people may have said, or maybe even what they say now, is not the basis for faith. Maybe in light of that, what about the fifth one? What else did the children of Israel have the nerve to say? By this point, aren't you somewhat amazed at the nerve they had? Let's look further. Closing part of verse 17. 
in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then had we plenty of victuals, and were well and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. If you and I can put in our own words what they were saying, they said to Jeremiah, back when we were in fact not worshiping the queen of heaven, we had bad times. Our food supply ran short. We had to face the enemies and various other difficulties from war. We had hard times, but now that we're offering incense to the queen of heaven, wow, our bellies are full, everything's good. So, Jeremiah, we're just going to keep on doing it. They were basing their faith on the physical blessings and the considerations of what happened at that same point in time. Now, question, does that sound like a good foundation for faith? Does that sound like a bedrock upon which to build a life that's able to withstand the difficult times? We know the answer is no. Isn't it true there are still many today who seemingly are afflicted with that same desire? In other words, they're going to base what they do on things like convenience. It's convenient, and because of that, that's enough of a reason to do it for me. And so that's the way I'm going to do it. I like it this way. It's convenient. And I seemingly been blessed okay in the last little while, so I think I'll just continue it. What an incredibly shaky foundation. Quite frankly, it's no foundation at all. It's coincidence in many ways in the sense that these events that happened just happened to correspond to the features in time. In fact, the children of Israel had found themselves in that lot. And did you notice what Jeremiah told them earlier? All you folks here in Egypt, you may think you've escaped the judgment of God, but God knows where you are, and guess what? You are not going to go back to Jerusalem in peace. You're going to be killed with a pestilence and with a sword. Now, what do you think about that worship of the Queen of Heaven? Is she going to protect you then? You'll notice those comments in that particular slide one more time. This particular church happens to be close to where I live. Now, it seems like they don't really do everything that they ought to, but since it's convenient and they meet at a good time of the day, I think I'll just go there. Won't it be sad to arrive at the day of judgment and this book is opened and verses out of it are read and then, of course, the judgment will be easily appreciated because you didn't do what it was that the Lord demanded of you. And convenience will have no bearing on the events of the day of judgment. We won't be judged on what was convenient or not. What was it Timothy was told? Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering. Notice whether it's convenient or not, that's what God demands. As we close that slide and appreciate one more time that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, every one of these foundations have been so very faulty. As our lesson races to its conclusion this morning, I would ask you to think about these thoughts at the top of that slide and then we'll conclude our lesson. Many have lamented over the course of decades past about the features of the faith of individuals in the church of Christ. And many have commented how that at least in light of sometimes our youth, 
they are reared in the church, but then they reach the time they become an adult. They go off to college or go off to somewhere else, and then their faith seemingly is gone. It becomes weakened. Well, I would submit that not just that consideration, but any of us could find ourselves in this position. As you grow up, and as you appreciate the integrity of what faith is and what the church is, it becomes an easy matter to appreciate the foundation upon which it's based. And many in our world will choose things like convenience, and they'll choose things like we've discussed this morning. Maybe it's what parents did, grandparents. Maybe it's what prominent individuals have done. Maybe it's just what I want to do. There's one thing I believe I can pretty much say as a guarantee because I think the New Testament does it. Any life that's based upon things like that, the devil is going to find a way. And he is going to orchestrate matters to cause great hardships and problems and moments of challenge. And in those moments of challenge, if one's faith isn't strong enough, it's just going to crush and it will fall. That's why we need faith that's not built on these flimsy things, but a faith that's built on Romans 10, 17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Why do we worship the way we do? It's not because of what dad or mom said. It has nothing to do with what previous generations have done. It has everything to do because that's what this book says is supposed to be done. And the way it's to be done, and when it's to be done, and how it's to be done. We orchestrate worship, the plan of salvation, because this book says it's to be done that way. And that is what faith's all about. And the devil will have a hard time crushing a faith that's built on that because that person's always ready to go back to what saith the Scripture, Romans 4 verse 3. The answers of men will never suffice for that person. Today, what about your faith and mine? Is it founded upon the rock of Matthew 7, 24 and following? Or is it founded upon something as sandy as these things we've learned about today? The children of Israel tried every one of them and they failed miserably. Why don't you and I then turn as we close that slide to make our calling and our election sure? 2 Peter 1 verse 10. The plan of salvation is the following. It's because the Bible says it's this way. Hear the blessed word of God. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His glorious name as the Son of God and be baptized. And if we could assist you today in your response to that invitation, what a grand and glorious occasion it'd be. But it might be there's someone in the audience today who started with a powerful foundation of strength and truth. But maybe over the course of time, things have happened and family circumstances have changed and your pursuit in life has become so different than what it once was. Maybe you've become to rest upon some of these things we've seen this morning, and a thought of this, thus saith the Lord just not as important as it should be. You need the prayers of strength today, and you need to make repentance too, and you need to confess those things, and we'd be delighted to pray to God for you. Today, if you need the foundation of your faith to be put back on where it ought to be, why not begin a first step and come forward even now while together we stand and while we sing.